This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 3rd of September, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, playing politics with the pandemic yet again, is it the end of the Liberal Party as we now know it? And how can a report be released if it doesn't actually exist? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. The older I get, the better I was. Thanks to those new Patreon subscribers. We've got a growing number of supporters, so thank you very much to all those people that have signed up. In the recent mini-podcast, we looked at when the election might be held and who's best placed to win the election at this stage and check to see if there might be any late leadership changes. And here's a hint, we don't actually think so. But anyway, you can find the details at our website, newpolitics.com.au, and it's a very, very good way to support independent journalism. Vaccination rates are going up, as are the daily case numbers in New South Wales and Victoria. But it's hard to ignore the fact that political games are still being played by the federal and New South Wales governments, and they're doing as much as possible to gloss over all the mistakes they've made. This has become a recurring theme, but the governments who need to resort to spin, marketing and political games to hide their problems are governments that have got nothing else left to offer to the public and don't deserve to be in office. Playing politics with public health during a pandemic is absolutely despicable, but that's all we're getting from the New South Wales and federal governments who, instead of focusing on resolving the problems that they've created and getting Australia out of this pandemic quickly, they're still focused on attacking the state premiers who aren't prepared to sign up to their open-up-at-all-cost narrative and looking to blame others for the errors that they've made. Now, David, I'm not a mathematician, but there are zero cases in Western Australia and Queensland, and they're very free to move about. New South Wales had 1,431 new cases today and 12 deaths. They've got continuing lockdowns and curfews. Now, I might be missing something here, but why is everyone attacking the premiers of Western Australia and Queensland and ignoring all the problems created by the New South Wales government? It is, of course, to deflect blame from a compliant media, and not all members of the media, and not all members, let's be really fair here, not all members of the media organisations who have been leading the charge, but certainly particular media organisations have wanted to open up. They haven't wanted a lockdown situation. They've wanted to open up since the beginning, thinking that we can live with the virus. There's never any talk of what the deaths would cost, Gladys Berejiklian yesterday said that there's 8 million people in lockdown and they're not allowed to do what they want. We might have to suffer a few deaths to get people back to some kind of normality. This was a horrifying statement. And this is the attitude of quite a lot of people in positions of authority and power. What they haven't realised is that the dead can't spend money. The sick, the cripplingly sick can't spend money, but they cost money, both in terms of treatment and both in terms of not being able to generate income to be able to spend money. 
we're in an insane situation. And I've said before, we're being governed by people who essentially learned how to debate at university in student politics. So it's very immature. It's very he said, she said. It's very juvenile. And, and I think we do deserve better. So Gladys Berejiklian has been saying that we have to accept deaths as part of this COVID outbreak. And we have to remember that this is the outbreak that she caused by her lack of action in early June. And she's been pushing out this message that we have to accept deaths. She's been conflating COVID deaths with deaths from influenza. And that's the same language that anti-vaxxers and COVID deniers have been using as well. And then she said this. Death is horrible. But we also need to put things into perspective because at the moment there are 8 million citizens who don't have a choice in how they spend their free time, who don't have a choice about what they can do when they can leave their homes. That is no way to live. So it's very unusual for a political leader to start talking about the need to accept deaths. We haven't actually heard that since Andrew Fisher was talking about needing to accept deaths on the fields of Gallipoli back in 1915. I haven't got a recording of that moment, but... These are very, very strange times. I'm really a pacifist and I don't like war, but with a war, you know that some of your combatants are going to get killed and that's the acceptance. They also know that when you sign up, you know that there's a risk of being deployed overseas and not coming back. But with a pandemic, particularly in the early stages, you may get people dying. But in a first world hospital system that is allegedly well run, we could easily achieve zero deaths very quickly. This notion that we have to accept them to me is completely wrongheaded and points to, I think, a failure of leadership in New South Wales health. And when I say leadership, I mean the very senior management. I don't mean the frontline workers. I keep thinking of Wellington's comment on the English army during the Napoleonic Wars, which they were lions led by sheep. That, I think, is New South Wales health. You have the absolute best people on the front line, and we have underfunded, ignored senior management who haven't been able, for whatever reason, to stand up to a minister clearly out of his depth. And really, this is the only reason that New South Wales has been a problem. Ruby Princess. And I note there's been a bit of a trope on social media of, oh, the Ruby Princess was 18 months ago. Things are different now. But without the Ruby Princess, we wouldn't have the crisis in Australia. It is really that simple. And whose fault was it? Federal, first of all, because it's a customs and quarantine issue, but also the state government who apparently gave the the final okay to let the passengers off the ship without testing, without checking. What does matter is COVID not being able to be stopped in Australia due to an incompetent and apathetic state government in the major state, in the state where everybody comes into from overseas just about. Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, Queensland have all reached COVID zero and have slammed the doors shut. Victoria nearly did. There will likely be further COVID cases in Queensland because I understand that People are sneaking across the border and it's possible that South Australia and Victoria might have some transmission. And I should add too, for the naysayers, both South Australia and Tasmania are liberal governments and they've done a very excellent job in doing the right thing, in supporting their communities and keeping the virus down. We may disagree with them on every other piece of policy, but credit where it's due, they've done a really good job in that. 
which is basically listening to health advice. The actions of the New South Wales government and the federal government have been quite inconsistent over the past 18 months, but they have put all of their focus on getting the vaccination rate in New South Wales up as quickly as possible at the expense of other states as well. And they're hell-bent on opening up at 70% and 80% vaccination rate without understanding the full consequences. Children between 0 and 12 and 12 to 16, which I guess is another way of saying children 16 and under, (laughs) they're not included in that 70 and 80% figure that they keep talking about. Within that group of children, they're going to have lower vaccination rates if they do open up when adult vaccination rates are 70 and 80%, as well as many people in vulnerable communities. Indigenous people have less than half the rate of the rest of the community. And a lot of vulnerable people, including children during this pandemic, they don't just don't seem to have been considered. The message prior to this Delta outbreak was that, oh, kids don't get coronavirus, which is not actually true. But that message has now morphed into kids don't get hospitalised, which is actually untrue as well. They're less likely to end up in hospital or ICU, but some children are still ending up in hospital, but there's still a high chance that they will catch coronavirus. And and just generally, we're being accused of promoting this lockdown message just because it's supported by Labor premiers. Now, to, to be honest, I'm not having such a bad time during this lockdown period and extended curfew, but David, I'm a happy guy. I'll be happy with the lockdown. I'll be happy when there isn't a lockdown. I'll just do whatever has to be done. And I don't believe that opening up New South Wales with over 1,400 cases each and every day and exporting that problem to the rest of Australia is such a good idea. And also, speaking of children, one of the big education items at school over the past 20 years or so has been that idea of teaching kids resilience. You know, I didn't think that they would include children becoming resilient to the effects of coronavirus, but it looks like it's the adults that need a bit of training in resilience. Back last year at the first one, there was a a meme that went around that said something along the lines of, our grandparents were sent overseas to fight in World War II. You're being asked to sit on the lounge at home. And yes, it's difficult and it's hard and if we had better governmental management, again, why aren't they just making sure that everybody is getting some form of compensation, even if it's taxable? Yep, okay, you earned $300,000 last year. We gave you a couple of thousand dollars each month. We'll take that back. Thanks. Yeah, okay, you earned $18,000 last year, and we, we upped that with a couple of thousand each month. You can keep that. I don't really see except it's neoliberal ideology to make sure that only the rich get more money they call it trickle down economics it's actually spray up economics because at the end of this the economy i think is going to start to do very well as the jobs that haven't been done start to get done as the positions that weren't available beforehand become available we're in the middle of a fundamental change and things are going to be very different at the end of it all in ways that we can't predict at this point. But I'm optimistic that at the end of this, there's going to be an economic boom, despite the poor economic credentials of the current government. Any money used in support now will be repaid back tenfold or fivefold through just invigorated economic activity at the end. And I don't know why any economist can't see this. Happened at the end of World War One. Happened at the end of World War Two. 
there's no reason why it can't happen here. So the main public health messaging coming from the government is get vaccinated and we'll return to the life that we had before. And getting as many vaccinations as possible is the goal here, and that's absolutely fantastic. But there doesn't seem to be any preparation for the public about what might happen if vaccination doesn't achieve those health outcomes that we've been told about. That's opening up once reaching that 70% and 80% vaccination rate of the adult population is achieved. What do we do when everything opens up again once we reach those rates of 70 or 80% and there's a different strain of the Delta virus or a new variation of coronavirus that is impervious to the vaccines that have already been administered. Now, we've talked about this before, but the world needs to be reimagined during this time. The workplace needs to be reimagined. Education, economics, politics... And the the public should be told, well, we can work towards opening up, but we'll have to maintain all of those practices that we've been doing for the past 18 months, sanitising, social distancing, limited travelling, quarantine. Governments do have to prepare based on what they know now, but they also have to prepare different options in case circumstances change. And epidemiologists have been suggesting that there are more dangerous variations of Delta that might be coming around the corner. And... If governments aren't prepared to this, well, we'll just have to do all of this all over again and again and again. It just seems like the public is not being prepared for what may be coming up just around the corner. Yeah, exactly. There's a new variant that the World Health Organization is labeling of interest, uh, the MUVA variant. It's the 12th letter of the Greek alphabet, MU. Whether it can be contained, whether it's more virulent again than Delta, or whether it's less virulent but more damaging, I I don't know yet. The virus is mutating, and unless we deal with it properly, and we need to deal with it properly too. Half the United States is not dealing with it properly. Britain is not dealing with it properly. There is a let-it-rip attitude amongst the neoliberal governments of the world, and it's been disastrous. Hundreds of deaths a day, thousands of infections a day, with no end in sight. You put a new variant in that, I don't think things will get better. A pandemic historically takes about three years to overcome. We're in our second year, and I'm hoping that in the next 15, 16 months, we will be able to completely beat it, but I don't have any trust. We do receive quite a lot of feedback during the week, so thanks to all of those people that send their comments through. Some of it is very kind, a lot of it is not very kind at all, but that's okay. That's the nature of the work that we do and the nature of the business that we're in. But we've been taken to task for not criticising Daniel Andrews during 2020, but attacking Gladys Berejiklian in 2021 for creating the same crisis. Well, it's not actually the case. We did point out that Daniel Andrews made mistakes in hotel quarantine during 2020, but he did take on huge efforts and great political expense to solve the problems, getting case numbers from 741 each and every day down to zero over a three or four month period. Our main concern is that Gladys Berejiklian had solutions available to her based on everything that had happened in the rest of the world throughout 2020, what had happened down south in Victoria, but she refused to implement them. And that's why there's such a massive difference between Gladys Berejiklian and Daniel Andrews. It's the same for Scott Morrison. He refused to act and still refuses to act on national quarantine issues. He was arguing about whether a quarantine site in Perth should be built at Jandicott or Bullsbrook, announcing initially that it was going to be built at Jandicott a few months ago, which is a very, very suitable location, before re-announcing it just last week that it's going to be built in Bullsbrook on contaminated land, which just happens to be in Christian Porter's seat. 
a seat that he will struggle to hang on to at the next federal election. Scott Morrison also played politics with Queensland on national quarantine issues as well. The federal government insisted on building a quarantine centre at the Pinkenbar site before the Queensland government had had enough of the politicking and then decided to build their own facility at Wellcamp in Toowoomba. Now, I'm pretty sure that if the Queensland government had chosen Pinkenbar in the first place, Morrison would have done the opposite. He would have insisted on building the site at Toowoomba. He's got some kind of oppositional defiance disorder. Now, this is not a sign of leadership or a sign of wanting to work towards ending the pandemic anytime soon. This is why we heap a lot of criticisms on the leaders such as Gladys Berejiklian and Scott Morrison, because they're simply not doing what they're meant to be doing. The first duty of any leader, the health and safety of their citizens. You fail in that, you've failed. The fact that Morrison and Berejiklian are still there is is an indictment on the current Liberal Party's view towards convention and tradition and proper procedure. Gladys should have gone years ago, and Morrison should have gone probably at least 12 months ago. Now, with the whole Victorian thing, a lot of that was still down to the federal government, because... Quarantine is a federal government responsibility and the Victorian government hired contractors that had been approved by the federal government. I know this gets into blame game, and but context is also important. I don't think the Andrews government has been perfect, but I think they learned a lot of the hard lessons that Gladys didn't need to learn because all they had to do was look over the border and she refused to. And I think that's worth remembering. But there's also that situation between Gladys Berejiklian and Scott Morrison. They have an extreme distaste for each other, but they are members of the New South Wales Liberal Party and they will unite for a common cause. And their plan seems to be sending out all of these negative messages against Labor premiers, propping them up as these people that are not prepared to open up the economy, they're against freedoms and these sort of issues. All of this political messaging that they are setting up against the Labor premiers around Australia and against the opposition leader, and. Albanese, these are politically easy to rebut. It's quite simple. Western Australia doesn't want COVID, nor does Queensland. But there's a lot of seats that can be lost in those two states during a federal election. And I just can't see all of this being an election winning formula for Scott Morrison, who's got to face up to the electorate before May 2022. Gladys Berejiklian, well, she's got another 15, 16 months before the next New South Wales election in March 2023. But demonising all these people in southwest Sydney, demonising all the people of Western Australia and Queensland, it just doesn't seem to be a very sensible move. They're calling him the Prime Minister for Sydney, and I can see that. I think it's a justifiable position to have it at. I think one of the things, too, is that they don't understand the gravity of the disease. None of the federal parliament has died from it. None of the federal parliament has had long COVID, with the possible exception of Peter Dutton. There's been persistent rumours that he has long COVID, but I don't know if that's true. So I, I think that they're not seeing the effects of it. Deaths as numbers is quite easy to emotionally distance yourself from. 12 deaths today, 7 deaths yesterday. It's just another figure to sprout out after you've delivered the good news and that you can breeze through in about four seconds. And those figures are low. It's not yet at the community where you'll know someone who went 
when the Bali bombings happened, I remember speaking to lots of people who knew people were there. It affected a lot of Australians just because of the breadth of people who were there and the six degrees of separations meant, oh, yes, I knew the football team and, you know, my neighbor's son's best mate played in it and he was killed in it. We haven't quite got to that, I think, in the broader community in COVID yet. And I think that they're hoping to avoid that uh, because once that happens, things will get a lot even more difficult politically for them. Of course, we don't want it to happen. Uh, There's this sort of trope from the right that if you discuss this type of stuff, you must be in favour of the deaths. I hope I'm wrong with all of this, but the evidence so far hasn't been promising. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next is at the end of the Liberal Party as we know it. Political parties occasionally go through an identity crisis, but they always need to reflect on who they are, where they've come from, and how they can best represent the concerns of the public that vote for them. The Federal Labor Party, they've only been in office for 38% of the time since Federation, so they've had a lot of time to reflect on these issues, especially during the 1950s and the 1960s, when they were out of office for 23 years. The Liberal Party was formed in 1945, a creation of Robert Menzies and other remnants of the United Australia Party, as a revival of liberal thought working for social justice and security and national progress. If you look at the Liberal Party of today, in 2021, it's a group of narrow-minded conservative extremists. Any moderates within the party are left at the periphery, and they're still caught up in the politics of the neoliberalism of the past 40 years at a time when the demands of the public, especially during the time of the pandemic, are asking for new solutions to old problems and rejecting the ways of the past. The Liberal Party has been soundly rejected in Victoria, Queensland and Western Australia in their most recent elections. Are there any signs in federal politics that they might be on the way out as well? The United Australia Party was an odd beast. And one of the things that um, it ends up imploding over was its too close ties to business. When Menzies relaunches the Liberal Party, he gives a very famous speech on radio, which has come to known as the Forgotten People, where he reaches out to who he sees as the natural electorate, uh, the middle class, the quiet middle class, who never ask for anything, who don't rely on government support, but who toil away in quiet but noble lives in which they are frugally successful but happily successful. Now, Menzies is a much more complex figure. He was, of course, hated by the Labor Party. When he died in 1978, one of the workers' newspapers had the headline, Pig Iron Bob is Dead. But he called it the Liberal Party because they weren't conservatives. But essentially, they liked individual. They liked the power of the individual. They liked entrepreneurship. They did believe in what you might call social justice to an extent. They 
did expand the middle classes and were quite happy to help people out of the working class into the middle class. There's a whole range of reasons, not least of which was fear of communism. But certainly the middle class expands while Menzies is prime minister. And again, we can look at a whole range of factors as to why it is. But Menzies doesn't try and stop that expansion, knowing that the more successful people are, the more that they can be told that this was through their own efforts, the more likely they would be to vote for the Liberal Party. They didn't like conservatism as such. There were some quite conservative members of the Liberal Party, but they were much less listened to. Menzies was in favour of a safety net. He introduces a single mother's pension, the university scholarships, unemployment benefits get a bit better. There's an expansion in public housing. Some of our more left listeners are probably pounding the table at the moment saying, but, 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 and I know all that. I'm contrasting some of those policies to today's policies, where everything's been contracted. Well, the party of Robert Menzies is now something completely different today. There's different versions of the forgotten people that Menzies talked about in 1945. There was Howard's Battlers in 1996, Scott Morrison's Quiet Australians in 2019. Tony's Tradies. Tony Abbott's Tradies, of course. The Liberal Party has been incredibly successful electorally since 1945. It's spent two-thirds of the time in office since that time and 20 years out of the past 26 years. So why would you change what your party is and the way that it behaves if you're receiving that sort of electoral success? The world has changed quite dramatically over the past decade and it's swung quite sharply since the pandemic commenced. But if anything, the Liberal Party has moved further to the right. The New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party dominates the Liberal Party, which is now a highly conservative branch. And we talked before about the Liberal Party being a creation of Robert Menzies, but I don't think the modern Liberal Party or the members of the Liberal Party, they don't genuflect at the thought of Robert Menzies anymore. It's more like they're genuflecting at the altar of John Howard more than anything else. Tony Abbott himself said he was the love child of John Howard and Bronwyn Bishop. Bleach sales went up as people were trying to clean their eyes of such a vision. (laughs) Around 1977, the attitude changes. John Howard becomes treasurer under the last really liberal government in Australia, which was the Fraser government. There's a little bit of a tendency now to lionise Fraser because of his unquestionable good work with Indigenous people, with refugees. He hated unions. So when members of the left say, oh, you know, Fraser did some good, yes, okay, yes, and we should remember him letting Vietnamese refugees in at at great political cost. He should also be remembered for trying to smash the unions, for the razor gangs, cutting public service. And once John Howard gets his hands on the purse strings of the Treasury, things start to change in Australia. Hawke and Keating continue some of these as well. We can't forget that. Probably less neoliberal, but still a neoliberal government. They've become more and more radical in their approach, and even socially radical, but from the other side. It's very much in line with Trumpism, very much in line with what Boris Johnson is doing in in England, where they're allowing things to run riot because they hate regulation, they hate minimum wages, they hate the sense that anybody other than themselves and their donors would get any government money. And this is what's going to happen. When we hit a crisis, you might be able to get away with this stuff when times are relatively good. 
But when we're in crisis and people are screaming for help and you have a government that believes that it it's, shouldn't exist and in some ways should be wound back, not always. They want increased police powers. They want to be able to kick into the poor. They want to let rapacious business take over the economy and suck it all up so that a few people can get richer. Unless the party can truly represent what the Australian public wants, it shouldn't last, and it probably can't. Now, I'm not going to say the Australian public is a radical leftist group who wants to form collectives everywhere. Not at all. I think a lot of the reason that they've managed to maintain electoral support is that people are thinking back to earlier versions of the party and remembering that. Now we're in crisis. We all have more time to look at things. We all know what happens when you have small government advocates running what where a big government is needed. I think that they're in a lot of trouble. Some of our listeners have asked us, well, because there's been a a strong repudiation of the Liberal Party at the state level in quite a few elections, well, does that mean that there'll be a repudiation of the Liberal Party at the federal level as well in the next election? Well, not necessarily. You cannot get a bigger rejection than what happened in Western Australia. The Liberal Party only has two seats out of 59. They're not even the formal opposition party over there. And I knew that the election was quite a thumping loss for the Liberal Party earlier this year, but they only won 30% of the two-party preferred vote. That's an absolute shellacking. In Queensland last year, they received 47% of the two-party preferred vote. In Victoria, now this is going back four years ago, so or three years ago, I should say, in the 2018 election, they only received 43% of the two-party vote. Current polling suggests that they're only tracking to receive 40% of the vote, even though their current leader, Michael O'Brien, has got more spotlight than any other opposition leader across Australia. Every political party has its fools and misfits, but the Liberal Party seems to attract people like Craig Kelly, Tim Smith in Victoria, Craig Rennick in South Australia, Amanda Stoker in Queensland, James Patterson. They're loudmouth wannabes who are ultimately nobodies. Now, my feeling is that that repudiation of the Liberal Party at the state level, there seems to be more of a correlation between the votes at the state level with the federal level and even a loose alignment in the voting patterns in the next federal election for Western Australia, Queensland and Victoria pretty much means that the federal election is lost for the Liberal National Party even before we get to seats in New South Wales. Yeah, and you're right. There's always been seat warmers. There's always been crooks. There's always been duds. Very rarely did they get to ministerial level. There's been a lot of plotter ministers, people who did an okay job, and this is on both sides, people who got the job because the numbers uh, and the various deals between uh, states and factions worked out that way. Menzies himself complained about not being able to pick the best people because you might have had you know, three really terrific Western Australians, but you could only pick two of them because of the way the cabinet was balanced because you had to have an equal share of all the states. You also have, a, have a, an arrangement with factions, but not ever have we had so many people who are not just unfit to be in the leadership positions, but unfit to be in parliament on one side of politics. In what we might call normal times, Scott Morrison would have gotten nowhere near a safe liberal seat. And in fact, he didn't. It was only that he uh, was able to destroy Michael Tauk's reputation through a compliant media that he was able to get the seat. 
Apparently, there are those in the Liberal Party in the federal government saying they wish they'd voted for Peter Dutton. If Peter Dutton is the answer, God knows what the question is. The party is in crisis. So is Labor, really. Labor needs a, a restructuring. Its factions have drifted too far apart, I think. But it still has good people in leadership positions and in prominent positions that are straining, I think, against the, the tensions, but it's still holding at the moment. Now, I'll be honest, I thought the Liberal Party should have reformed about the time that the Berlin Wall fell down when the whole neoliberal thing started to fall apart badly. And then again in 2000, and that's you know 30, 20 and 30 years ago, they may need a total shellacking to get rid of a lot of the dead wood. Now, David, you and I love talking about elections, and there has been some chatter about a federal election to be held on the 6th of November. The theory is that New South Wales will open up on the 1st of November, even though case numbers will still be very high at that time. Now, I can see great fanfare on the 1st of November, bugles, balloons, fireworks, just like they did in the Freedom Day in the UK. If all of this proceeds, if this ends up being a super spreader event in New South Wales on election day and the case numbers start to rise significantly after November the 6th, well, who cares? Because the election will be over by then. If the Liberal Party wins the election, it will have another three years to clean up the mess. But at the moment, we can see that the Liberal Party is already trying to create a wedge with the Labor Party, suggesting that Scott Morrison is the one promising freedoms and end to lockdowns and curfews opening up the economy, but suggesting that Anthony Albanese and the Labor Party want the worst outcomes possible in the pandemic. They want continuing lockdowns, and they're the ones that are standing in the way of freedom for the community. Now, I think that this would be a tough sell. It might work in New South Wales, but not in the other states around Australia. But for Scott Morrison, for the Liberal Party and the National Parties, there's nothing else for them to be able to campaign on in the next election. They've botched the vaccination rollout. They've botched the national quarantine system. The economy is facing a second recession within 18 months. And a government which doesn't have very much to campaign on usually engages in a brutal attack based on lies, negativity, personal attacks. To be honest, I don't know whether there will be an election in early November, but whether the election occurs in November this year or May next year, it's going to be a pretty ugly and awful affair. It's been a very risky strategy. He was able to come up with extra doses of Pfizer that were from some kind of reserve that even Brad Hazard, the New South Wales health minister, didn't know about. Uh, the theory is, is that he was holding them back for essentially pork barreling, going to the safe seats and saying, hey, look, we've got your vaccinations. He doesn't seem he can do that now. Even if he could, people have seen through it. We know that they cheat. They've got a whole range of really unlikable. And when I say unlikable, I don't mean as people necessarily. They might be the nicest people you'll ever spend time with, but they don't come across well. Having said that, he was gone according to all polls. And in that last election, I felt that something wasn't right and that he might scrape back in. Boy, I wish I was wrong. I think one of the things mitigating against a November election is that I think there's still a few chess pieces to go into place. They haven't announced candidates for all their seats. But, and again, we have the chaos-making machine of Clive Palmer 
spreading all kinds of, let's call them alternative facts through advertisements everywhere. YouTube, I've noticed, has started Don't Trust Liberal or the Labor Party. But of course, all the preferences get shuffled through to the Liberal Party. And this is where the education system needs to be reformed. A lot of people don't know how the complex system of Australian voting works. Done properly, it's actually very fair. But it, as we've seen in the last few elections, and possibly before that, it can be manipulated. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. The head of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Philip Gaitchens, he's now said that he won't release a report into who knew what with the allegations that a Liberal Party staffer sexually assaulted Brittany Higgins in April 2019. This incident occurred over two years ago. The revelations of the incident occurred in February this year. And Gaitchens was instructed to produce a report by Scott Morrison. The report was delayed for the first time a few months ago. In May, he said that he'd finalised this report within a couple of weeks. And that's what he said to the Senate Estimates Committee. He's now said that he's received legal advice from the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions that his report would prejudice criminal proceedings. Now, he won't release that legal advice and the DPP doesn't get involved with these sort of political issues as to whether this legal advice has been released or not. But The reason he won't release this report is because it doesn't actually exist. Now, I'm not trying to set up an existential question, but how can you release a report if it doesn't exist in the first place? But this is all political stonewalling. The real reason behind the report not being released, or if it does exist, I don't think it does, but the real reason why it's not being released is that if all of this information comes out, that's the end of Scott Morrison. Seven months to prepare a report. Philip Gaitchens is either incompetent or he's just doing exactly what he's been told to do, which is to not release anything at all. Either way, it is totally unacceptable. When I first heard it, I was inclined to think we don't want the victim being prejudiced, that things coming up before a court case can work against the victim and justice cannot be done. And Gaitchens suggested that that would be the case. But the more I looked at it, the more I thought this is a little bit specious because they haven't cared about her before this part. And unless the report finds that her recollection of events is different to the rest of the evidence like cameras and other witnesses, I, I don't know that it's protecting the innocent so much as it's protecting the guilty. I am inclined to believe the report exists. I think it's been filed next to that report by KPMG that exonerated Scott Morrison of any wrongdoing when he was sacked from there. It's probably in the same filing cabinet somewhere. It's not right to not do this. You might release it to Parliament and keep it under wraps from public eyes till after the court case. You know, of course, with legal proceedings, well, the DPP has got a right to say, well, look, hold that report. Don't release that report. It's going to be prejudicial to the legal case that we've got up and running. But the issue is that that legal case only commenced about six weeks ago or or thereabouts. And Gaitchens has had about four months to prepare this report. He did actually say in May that 
it's around the corner. It's going to be released in a couple of weeks' time. So to claim that there's legal cover now that he can't actually release any of this information because it's prejudicial to, to the court case, he's had a long, long time to prepare this report. And I'm sure it's dealing with issues from two and a half years ago now. And some of the people within the department might have moved on. But still, he's been asked to commission a report into this. He might have needed more time than the four and a half months that he took before legal proceedings commenced, but they're obviously providing cover for Scott Morrison. They're obviously providing cover for the Liberal Party as well. And I maintain that if all of these events had been revealed back in April 2019, the federal government would have lost that 2019 election. The reason why this information is not coming out now is that it's not so much that it's prejudicial to a court case, it's prejudicial to Scott Morrison's election hopes. Yeah, that's what it gets down to. Everything being viewed through a political lens. Some of it has to be politically managed, of course, but all of it is being politically managed. And again, this is people unfit for office, people who don't understand the subtleties and the nuances of management, who don't understand how things work and how they should work. And ultimately, whether people see through it or not, I don't know. I'd like to say, oh, people will see through it. But we get bombarded with so much information and major media outlets may well bury it towards the end of reports or towards the back of the newspaper or or what have you so that the full story isn't getting out. So, yeah, I've lost faith in the system to be able to fix things. But I hope that justice is done and justice is seen to be done. The government has voted against the proposal to fully implement the Respect at Work report. It's a report that was produced by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, in January 2020, and it looked at ways of reducing sexual harassment in the workplace. And you'd think after the year that this government has had with allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault by one of its staffers at Parliament House, they'd be quick to act on this. The government did release its response in April this year. That's 15 months to produce a response. And at that stage, it said that it noted or supported the 55 recommendations contained within the report. And then it just did nothing with it. And because nothing was happening with the report, the Labor Party prepared a proposal to implement the full recommendations of that report. But the government decided to veto nearly all of the recommendations, including recommendations that ban sexual harassment in the workplace, make equality for men and women the objective of the Sexual Discrimination Act, protect victims against litigation from employers and perpetrators, allowing third parties such as unions to act on behalf of their victims. So what kind of political party votes against a report that it commissioned? And you'd think that even to provide itself with political cover, after the year that they've had with all of these issues, they just pass the Respect at Work recommendations without even thinking about it. It goes back to what I was saying about this neoliberal idea where they want to control everything except what the rich do. They're all in favour of police action till the police come and correct them for stuff they've done wrong. They're all in favour of not being abused by other people till it's them abusing someone else. It's all about rebalancing the power so that those with less power have even less and those with more power have even more. I think the good thing is that society is changing enough that a lot of those recommendations, at least in some places, are just naturally in place anyway. And I suppose they'd be arguing 
this is why we don't need to put them in. But not enough of them are. And we're still probably a generation away from removing it completely. And so to put in and you say, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, you can do this, you can do this. And that's probably the better way. You can bring in a third party such as a union to help arbitrate this stuff. You can get support when you need it. You can be retrained or re-educated, if you like, to behave in a more appropriate way and find that this way is actually better. And it's typical of the neoliberal side of things to protect the power they have, even in petty little ways of treating your co-workers properly and politely and respectfully, because even that little concession to power is too much for them. And this leads us back to the point, is the Liberal Party doomed? This type of stuff doesn't help them. They're going against what's becoming very much society norm. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.